Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on cost models. I have spent the last, oh, I don't know, two weeks doing way too many Thanksgiving dinners and eating way too much turkey. And there's a real cost to eating all that food in terms of my waistline and my fridge bulging and, you know, my belly. And that brings me around to, you know, talking about cost models. You know, what is a cost model and why do I care? Okay, so, you know, I'll start out by saying I think most every assembly language programmer is well aware of a cost model, and most C and C++ programmers are probably also aware, although there'll be some who are not. But I think that, you know, many Java programmers are not aware of what a cost model is. And I think as you go further away from low-level languages to, you know, higher and higher, as you go to JavaScript or Python, I think these folks are pretty far removed from any cost model. And while some are aware from maybe historical usage, many are not. And, you know, the JVM and the Python and JavaScript runtimes really, they don't seek to hide a cost model from you. But in practice, they end up, yes, hiding a cost model from you. Okay, so what is a cost model and why do you care? So a cost model is simply a model for the cost of doing business. That is a model, for instance, on a CPU, the time cost of a basic operation, but sometimes it might be the memory cost if you have a limited memory space device, or the energy cost if you're you know, coding on a, on a low energy, low power device like a cell phone. It doesn't have to be perfect, um, but it should be within sort of 2x of reality to be, require, uh, to be useful. And in, in particular, however, a cost model has to be has to scale reasonably well to larger programs, where the obvious way you scale is simply by adding the costs of the smaller parts together. So the cost model informs you of the cost of doing business and helps you make trade-offs in different kinds of coding styles. Sometimes your goal is to get something done as fast as possible in terms of time to market, and you're in a code in whatever is convenient and fast to make something happen. And sometimes when you're done doing that, you discover that what you built is too slow to be useful. And then it becomes a question of how to make it go faster, and you start profiling and looking at where the time goes. And now you're, you know, you're thinking about a cost model sort of after the fact. Turns out that if you think about the cost model before you dive in, there are certain kinds of coding styles and things you do and language choices you make that you might do differently if you had a cost model in your head. I'm not saying optimize from square one. That's that's absolutely the wrong answer. You, know, you get something functioning and right and correct and all that. But if you understand the cost of doing business, there are generally some really easy trade-offs you make up front that lead to programs that are cleaner and faster from the get-go with minimal effort. They're just fold them into your everyday programming uh, tricks. And when it comes time to do the profiling and performance optimizations, you'll already have a system where all the junk work you do isn't the slow part, it's something particular that you just need, didn't realize and a profiler points it out to you and away you go. Okay, so let me, let me get a little more concrete here and talk about, for instance, the cost model of using a linked list collection instead of an array for a collection. And I'm not gonna claim that linked lists are bad here, but I am gonna point out that they, in most cases, they have a much higher cost model over an array for essentially the same functionality. There are a few things you can do differently in an array versus a linked list that make a big difference one way or another, but most of the common operations you do can be done in either structure completely equivalently, but one has a much lower cost model. Okay, so let me, let me, let me go into why there would be a cost difference between a linked list and an array collection, and then I'll get into some more examples here. A, a linked list has the, has the interesting notion that you have a pointer to the next element 
and then the thing that you're trying to hold in your collection. For every thing you have in your collection, you also have a pointer to the next element. So if the thing you have in your collection is small, it is itself a pointer or a, a small integer or you know UUID or whatever, some small value, then adding a pointer overhead probably doubled your memory cost, if not worse. So immediately a linked list gives you twice the memory cost over the equivalent array. But let me get to that more in a minute here. So the bigger cost is when you look at the contents of a linked list and you want to get to an element that's further down it, you have to walk it. And this requires you to indirect through every pointer in the linked list one after another after another. And why is this different in cost than going through an array? It's because the, the, the start the next memory fetch you have to have the prior one in hand to get that pointer. To go to the next linked list element, you fetch the pointer of the current one, but you can't go to the one past that until you've gone to the one just in front of you. So you end up chasing memory references one after another. And you know what is the cost of that? Well, if they fit in your cache, your L1 lowest level cache, your memory costs, your cost of doing business, is roughly two to four clock cycles. It varies by CPU. And why do I care about two to four clock cycles? Well, if I have a, a you know, small element of you know, 10 or less, maybe I don't. If I have a thousand, then you know, walking through a thousand things costs me maybe three X the, the thousands and that's starting to add up. But in particular, by the time I get to a thousand things, I'm probably no longer fitting in that L1 cache and I'm down to the L2 cache. And in an L2 cache, I am now looking at, you know, 10 to 20 clock cycles. There's a, there's a roughly 10x bump in size. And when I go to a million elements, I'm not in the L2 anymore and I'm in the L3. And again, I take another 10x bump to do basic operations. The, the cost to walk that linked list of a million elements is a million L2 cache misses. And that's a lot. I look at an array, an array packs the elements end to end to end in memory, such that when I fetch one, I end up fetching actually a cache line. And that cache line holds the next four to eight elements, depending on the size of my cache lines, which means that I get a lot more elements for the amount of cache I burn. And also, I already have them in my L1. So when I want the next element, I don't have to fetch through another pointer, I can just grab the next one in line. And most CPUs are well optimized for this case because the laws of physics just work out better that way. I can't say I wouldn't like the other solution to uh, work better, but in fact, you know, there is a reality, there is some speed of light involved here, and the array structure is just better when you're going through things in bulk. So if you have 10 things, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. If you have a thousand things, that array is going to be faster to walk through and to look and scan for elements. And then, you know, when you get to a million, it's going to be a lot faster. It's going to be a thousand times faster. So, so much faster that it becomes the defining speed problem. And now, okay, so arrays typically are faster. Let's talk more about what you do with linked lists and arrays. And we'll talk about where array uh, linked lists have a definite edge on an array and where they don't. So can I add and remove elements to and from an array at the same way, same kind of cost I can do in a linked list? And the answer is totally yes. And just like the linked list, you're going to have an add or remove function. You have an add or remove function on the array. And instead of putting up the zeroth element, you add it to the end of an array who's a little bit bigger than the list you're currently holding. So it has some slop space. Okay, how much is a little bit bigger? Turns out there's this old school trick, pretty commonly called the array doubling trick which is simply you have a known length of the array, the actual size of it, the amount of memory you've set aside. You have a current length, which is how much of the array you're using. When you want to add an element, you go to the end 
and you bump your used set up to the max of the array and you throw the new element in that spot. When the array gets full, you double it. That is, on the spot, you stop, you make a new array twice as big as the old one, you copy all the elements from the old array to the new array, and now you have a double-sized pile of slop at the end that you can use to add more things. Okay, what is the cost of doing this stop and copy? Well, it means an individual add or remove, I'm sorry, add element might take a big hit to do the doubling, but on average, the total costs of all the doublings that happen add no more than one more, you know, clock cycle or 01 step to putting an element in and out of array. It's not a thousand times more, it's not size the array more, it's order one on every element. So if an array costs you one clock cycle to get each element one after another, and you have to do the array doubling trick sometimes, then the cost is actually two on average instead of one, I guess to, to add elements. Um, because looking up remains the standard scanning speed for an array. It's nothing to adding or removing. So, so you basically, you put an array where the elements add on one end come off the other end. You remove an element off the array, you simply you know lower the length counter of the used portion of the array. And that makes an array a stack just the same as a linked list is a stack. We can push things on and off the head in order, you know, order constant time, a couple clock cycles. It's still cheaper on average on an array to add or remove an element than a linked list. In fact, it's enough cheaper that that is your primary piece of work, that is your have some sort of small queue that you're adding or removing constantly to, you're better off with an array than a linked list. Um, it'll still be like twice as fast on average. Scanning for an element in an array, scanning for an element in a linked list, both support scans, but the array is, as I said, it's starts being the same speed and it rapidly becomes, you know, 100,000 times faster as your, as your collection gets large. How about adding and removing elements in the middle, like after I scan for one and remove it, where I don't preserve order? In the linked list, the remove element in the middle is some pointer linking games where you shuffle a few pointers around, and you end up preserving order, and the cost is a few pointer shuffles. In the array version, if you're willing to not preserve order, it simply suffices to take the very last element of the array, pop it off your stack, and throw it over the element you're trying to remove out of the middle, and this does not preserve order, but it does preserve contents directly. And it is, again, order one time. It's a little bit of shuffle. It's less shuffle than the linked list, in fact. So again, you can add and remove elements out of the middle of an array collection for the, the you know, same or lesser cost over a linked list. If you have to preserve order and pull things out of the middle, now it becomes an issue. If you pull things off the, the active end of the array and you need to preserve order, you have to shuffle them over. And if the shuffle's not very big, then it's cheap and it's part of your order one costs. But if you're pulling things out of the middle or the beginning of a very large array, you have to shuffle a large array, then you get way too many copy, you know, costs become very large to move that much array and you're better off the linked list. So let me, let me, let me you know, back up here and summarize real quick. If you're adding and removing things from the head of a linked list array, the arrays generally faster by 2x. If you are scanning for an element in the middle, that will be as the same speed to uh, you know 1,000x faster depending on the size to use the array versus linked list. If you're adding or removing things um, out of the middle but you're not preserving order, then again the array is maybe 2x faster than a linked list on average. If you are adding or removing things in the middle and also preserving order, then, you know, as soon as your array gets beyond maybe a few thousand elements, you're better off with a linked list. There, there are some times when a linked list is a clear winner, but mostly it's actually a clear loser.
Okay, so enough about arrays uh, versus linked lists. It's not that I'm trying to beat on linked lists. I'm trying to bring out this notion that the real cost of doing business is how well and how effective your caches are. It's a sort of, you know, to pull a line from Martin Thompson, you know, there's some mechanical sympathy here to be aware of. The cost of doing business on a modern CPU is the cost of a cache line mess. That is the major cost, and that gets tied up in all of your data structures. So having pointer interactions typically brings in the chance for another cache line mess versus having the elements just packed into end to end in an array-like structure. And as soon as you take the odds of a you know, percentage chance of a cache line mess, your time goes up. That's just where it goes. Okay, so here's another fun way that you can get funny costs in places you don't expect it. Um, and that's looking at hash tables with a good hash function versus a bad hash function. So there's a bunch of ways to do hash tables. A common one for people to use is um, you have some sort of fixed size uh, set of buckets. And within each bucket, you have a linked list in case you have collisions and you hash to a bucket. And then if you get a collision, you chain people on a linked list. Um, and the linked lists are expected to be short with short linked lists versus short array, the costs are kind of met either way. And the bucket, on the other hand, might be a large array. And occasionally you decide you're full enough and you do the array doubling trick, copy everybody from the old hash table to the new, but you have buckets in the middle. What happens if you have a bad hash function? Okay, and why would you have a bad hash function and who cares? Well, it happens specifically and especially for library authors will run across the case where users use bad hash functions. And the common easy one is the user is simply grab, say, an auto-boxed capital I integer of an index that's incrementally counting up. And the hash of a capital I energy in, integer in Java is just the integer value. And so if you have a whole lot of things that are just counting up, it becomes pretty quickly the case that they all hash to the same place, however your hash function you know, spreads bits around. So, so Hash functions in well-used, well-loved libraries typically deal with this case specifically, but if you're hand-rolling your own hash table, maybe you haven't thought about it. What does a bad hash function do to you? Well, the easy thing it will do is it will hash to the same bucket. What's in the bucket on a collision? It's a linked list. So if you end up hashing a million things that all have the same bad hash, um, you get a million things on a linked list. And immediately your hash function decays down to the time to scan a million long linked list. And of course, you can add and remove things out of the middle of the linked list um, for the standard linked list time, but you don't care about the order in that kind of a, a situation. And at a million long, you're better off with an array. That is, a hash table that bottoms out in a linked list is more susceptible to a bad hash function than one that bottoms out in an array. So enough on that one. Let's let's look about let's look at other major costs here in in terms of you know how how the world works. There is this notion of object oriented programming and there are objects everywhere and there's an object header and that's a cost that goes on everything. If you're in Java, you have some primitives. They don't have object headers and an array of primitives then are are much denser than an array of capital I integers or capital D doubles. But you go to JavaScript. They all have a header, same for uh, you know, Python, and that means that the, an array of small integers is actually an array of pointers to things that are small integer containers, um, and therefore they have an extra level of indirection for everything. And furthermore, they have an extra object header for everything, and the cost of doing business there is at least double the memory, which is half of your cache. 
right? You just cut your cash size in half, effectively. And it's the cost of indirecting to make sure that, you know, all life is happy and good with these integers, which in an array that's intended to be an array of small integers, it would be. But the system doesn't have a type system that, you know, JavaScript and Python don't have a type system to claim that it is, so the JIT can't assume that it is, and therefore the contents have to be checked every time. And that brings around the cost of just doing business in those languages. It's harder to make them go fast. Okay, how about Java integer, capital I integers, capital D doubles? Well, there's this thing called auto boxing. And if you, you can fall over it, you know, pretty easily if you're, in a, say, hashing doubles or ints, um, you know, user IDs into a hash table, they're going to get boxed and then they're going to get unboxed. And the cost of boxing them can actually exceed the cost of doing a lookup in the dang hash table in the first place. So, so you, you need to be aware of when these things happen. The cost of manipulating a boxed integer or boxed double is substantially higher than the unboxed version. And you have to maybe make a decision about how your data structures look so that you can either dodge the I, you know, capital I, capital D issue, or you don't care. You know, it's all great to say, I don't care until you do, and then you have a real big problem to tease it out. But if you start out up front saying, I care a little bit, and I'm going to think about it this way a little bit, then you might choose a different data structure and be able to preserve the little eyes as long as possible. And as a consequence, you maintain this higher speed rate and a lower memory footprint rate, even as your system gets much larger. Okay, how about Java finals? There's a funny game there with finals. It's very specific to Java. Finals are not allowed to be seen in the pre-final version on remote threads even after publication, if you publish after making the object, you publish another thread after you make the object, uh, the constructor ends. As a consequence, on most hardware, you have to have some kind of final uh, memory fence after the end of setting the final. And while that's, you know, finals are great for multi-threaded use and all that, a memory fence typically disallows memory rewarding operations across it. It becomes the cost of a cache miss just to force the, the CPUs to have things in order. And then the cost of making a, a thing with a final includes a cache miss cost. Well, allocations usually include a cache miss cost already. However, in this case, you get a second one and capital I integer and capital D double are really common and they pay it every time. So if you have a small set of integers in the small capital I integer range, you get to use the small cache that's built into Java. As soon as you get integers outside that, you'll allocate them and that'll be a cache miss cost and you'll set a value, and then you'll do a memory barrier on the final field, and that'll be another cache miss cost, and then you can throw the damn thing into your hash table or pull it out or do whatever. And so there's an, there's even more cost to auto-boxing integers and doubles that may be not obvious uh, because of the final field semantics. What is the cost model for doing basic operations in Java uh, and in C? Loads and stores are hard to see in Java, but they typically exist around member functions. While local variables that you declare within a function, same as C, same as Java, typically go into registers. Registers always have this, you know, one clock cycle or less, half a clock cycle, you know, sort of cost. So basically no cost. So whereas setting a value, I'm sorry, in a, in a member variable has the cost of a store, which is, you know, you know, typically just a few clock cycles unless you're storing a huge amount of things and then you run out of memory bandwidth to writing things. And loading is typically just a couple clock cycles out of a member function unless it's going to miss and cache constantly. With every time you do a load or a store, there's always a chance of a miss. 
unless you happen to know you're doing the same thing over and over. First touch on an object that you've never seen before, you should consider the cache missed. Second touch is in your L1 cache, it's probably free. So, so there's a you know there's a coding style there that says if I do something once to a guy, um, if I do it again shortly thereafter, it's still pretty damn cheap. Um, I personally, if I'm going to do something again with a value that I've just pulled out of a loaded field, I usually put it in a temp to make my code more thread safe and to tell the compiler that in fact it's the same value so I don't have any aliasing you know, issues where the compiler doesn't optimize even more. But it's generally going to do a pretty good job there. The cost of doing a, uh, an allocation in C is a malloc cost, which typically recycles memory really closely. Whereas in Java, the cost of allocating is going to pull from a TLAB, you know, thread local allocation buffer. And that will give you a one clock bump pointer to a piece of memory that's not been seen in a long time. And you'll often take a cache miss to fill that thing up. So there is some costing differences there. On average, I think costing, you know, memory tracking in Java, of course, the garbage collection saves you from a huge, huge amount of grief that the C programmers have to deal with malloc and free that in turn turns into both a big source of bugs and a big source of programming effort that could have been better spent elsewhere. Um, but there is a cost allocating things in Java that don't assume it's zero cost. Calls, standard calls in Java and in C are all, you know, one clock cycle. Standard calls include anything that's not a megamorphic call. What's megamorphic? Well, it means you have a call site that takes different kinds of objects that go to different targets. Um, mostly in Java, all the calls you do are technically virtual calls, but in practice they go to a single target, and those calls will, in practice, come back down to one or two clock cycles as costs. They'll be cheap. And, and in C, of course, you don't have a megamorphic call, but maybe C++ you do. In C++, where you name things uh, as a virtual call, you expect them to be megamorphic, and you expect that cost to be higher, and it is. It's, it's typically like 30 clock cycles. Um, it's not this 1,000 clock cycles to main memory, 300 clock cycles to main memory, but it's definitely much more expensive than just touching local variables. Uh, and in Java, if you have a megamorphic call, it will also be that kind of cost. Whereas if you have a, a virtual call, you could just expect it to be, you know, if you're not really going megamorphic on it, it'll still be cheap. So what other things? Add, subtract, multiply, and divide have all come down to just a handful of clocks. You know, multiply and divide are still a few more, um, but they're not too bad. Both floats and doubles, all same low cost. When I started this business, you know, divides were very expensive, and people did things with array indexing math where you did shifts instead of multiplies. And these days, the shifts are cheaper, but the multiplies are still cheap. Um, and maybe I'm running out of things to talk about in cost model. It, it's really, it's a mindset. What is the cost of this thing I'm doing? And is there, um, do I care? And is there a cheaper cost I can do sort of really easily without messing with my coding? I, I'm, I'm solving a problem, probably not solving a performance problem at front, but I'll be solving a performance problem at some point probably here. So if I just do it the cheap way from the get-go without you know thinking too hard about it, in general, it's not a problem down the road either. It, it works out fine. So I always eyeball things as I go and add up what is the quickie cost here? And is this an order, you know, order 10 things kind of issue and I care less? It's an order 1,000 things kind of issue and I care some? It's an order millions and billions and I care a lot. You know, by the time I get to billions and I do things with that scale, I care a whole lot and I spend a lot of effort making sure that the billions are really cheap, whatever, however that's done, both in memory and in access time. But if I got 10 things, eh, whatever. 
And then, you know, profiling comes along and tells you where you were wrong about what was cheap and what was expensive and what was order 10 and what was order a million. But know what the cost is so when it comes time to fix it, you know what tools to reach for. Okay, I guess that's plenty enough time for me rambling on about cost models. You know, I'm here because I see a lot of issues with young programmers not understanding what a cost model is and ignoring it or having the same cost or assuming the same cost for all basic operations they do because they don't have a model in their head about what's cheap and what's expensive. So, you know, quick summaries, cache line misses are expensive. So the more times you touch unique, different pieces of memory, that's expensive because that's different cache lines. And how do you not touch so many different cache lines? Where arrays are a good choice. You know, structures where things are laid out near each other are also a good choice. Link lists, by their very nature, scatter things around and touch many different cache lines. But so do any kind of structures where you have pointers leading to more data, leading to more data. They tend to spray things around and therefore they touch more cache lines and therefore they run slower. Okay, so that's enough of that. You know, happy Thanksgiving coding to everybody and, and may all your cache lines, uh, may, may, may all your memory access is hidden cache. Thanks, bye-bye.